All right, well, uh, again, my name is Caleb, and I am one of the pastors here at The Grove. You saw our two other pastors here, Abel uh, and Jim, and we are um, expository teachers here at this church, and what that means is that the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God and let him speak to us. And so we are nearing the end of our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 this morning. These have some of the uh, more well-known verses in the Bible, and we'll see today why. Um, we'll see the hope and the clarity that God's Word gives us about who He is and how He views us. Because I think for all of us, there's been a temptation or there's a pull to perhaps view our lives and view ourselves in a way that God doesn't view us. Have you ever felt weak before? Have you ever felt inadequate? Have you ever felt like you didn't measure up? You're always falling short of maybe your expectation of yourself, maybe the expectation of others. We feel like we're not doing what it is we'd like to do. Everyone else seems to be doing fine, but your career isn't where it's like to be. Or maybe as parents, you look at other parents and what seems so easy for them and their family is impossible for you within your own. Everyone else is doing it with ease and you can't do it with your children. Maybe your life feels so damaged and broken. Maybe you're wondering here today if it's even salvageable. You feel that sense of inadequacy. Maybe it comes and goes, but we feel that. And maybe even to top off that sense of inadequacy, there's also a growing concern that maybe when it comes to God, maybe he's just tired of you. Maybe he's kind of uh, put up with all that he can, and maybe God kind of looks at you like, seriously, you don't have your act together yet? You haven't learned some of this stuff by now? And we feel like God is just frustrated with us as he looks down on us almost condescendingly saying, guys, it's been years, decades, and still you can't get your act together. Together, And maybe you walk in here feeling not just weak and inadequate, but perhaps even concerned that God is ready to give up on you. That's often the sense we have of our weakness and our inadequacy. So we view ourselves. But we've got to ask ourselves this question. How does God view us? And in particular, how does he view our weakness? How does God view your inadequacy? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? We'll look and see, uh, hear what God has to say in his word, written by his spirit through his apostle Paul, that answers that exact question. What does God think of our weakness? In chapter 12, Paul is continuing to refute these super apostles that have made their way into the church in Corinth that are teaching this false gospel that Paul's having to correct. Paul's calling them, in air quotes, super apostles because they act like they've got everything together. They're great communicators, great orators. They make a lot of money. They have all of these letters of recommendation. They look like they have their lives together. And one of the main things they keep pointing to Paul is saying, why would you follow him? Because his life is a mess. He's in jail. He's almost died. His pet's heads are falling off. Like everything is falling apart for Paul. An obscure Dumb and Dumber reference that wasn't in my notes. So if you got it, that's what that was. If you didn't, that's, that's why it was so odd. They keep pointing to Paul saying, this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't have it. Look at us. We've got our lives together. Look at how strong we are. And look at how weak he is. And so Paul's having to refute this. This is where he spends the last three chapters in the book of 2 Corinthians refuting this very thing. And so he's going to answer it head on because part of what else they're rolling out is saying that these super apostles have dreams and revelations and these extraordinary experiences that give them credibility over and against Paul. And so Paul's going to address this head on and show us how exactly God views our weakness and our inadequacy in 2 Corinthians 12. So let's read together verses 1 through 10 and then we will jump in together. Paul writes this to the church. He said, boasting is necessary. Now, it is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. 
I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's writing, again, correcting the super apostles. As we look here in these 10 verses, I want us to look at three different things that Paul writes about. First, he writes about an extraordinary experience. Then he writes about a thorny problem. And finally, third, we'll look at a new outlook. Kind of the direction we'll be headed today. An extraordinary experience, we'll see that in verses 1 through 7. A thorny problem in verses 7 through 9. And finally, a new outlook in verses 9 and 10. We'll spend most of our time in the second section looking at a thorny problem. But first, an extraordinary experience. Right? Could you kind of feel how awkward those sentences were written? Kind of stumbling through. What is Paul talking about here? Now, we're going to kind of breeze past this. Most people are probably reading it wanting to know what in the world is Paul talking about. Um, well, uh, first, it's important to notice. You kind of begin to pick up on it as the chapter goes on. But Paul's talking about himself here. Paul's talking about a revelation that he had. Now, he begins with saying, I'm going to talk about a man in Christ. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven. And he had this experience of seeing God's glory and what heaven looked like. Words inexpressible. No humans able to say them. And Paul's saying, I'm talking about that guy, not talking about myself. And who knows, was it out of body? Was it in the body? It was crazy. I don't know. And it goes on in verse 6, and Paul's talking about, I will spare you so that no one will credit me beyond what someone sees in me or hears from me, especially concerning the extraordinary revelations. Paul's talking about himself, but he's kind of having to, to back himself into this. He doesn't want to talk about it. This happened 14 years ago. Paul hasn't mentioned this to anyone. And so, in fact, he kind of, you feel the awkwardness of Paul saying, listen, I don't want to talk about it, um, but here it is. These guys are talking about dreams and revelations. Listen, the, I can brag about this, but I don't want to because I don't want you to feel like you're a lesser class of Christian. I don't want me to be elevated above where I need to be. So I haven't mentioned this for 14 years. Paul's kept quiet in all of his ministry about this experience because he wanted them to focus on what he was saying and how he was living. It was completely opposite than so many people today. Right? If Paul, it seems like so many people today, if they were to have that experience, would come back and write a book start seminars, uh, go around, start Facebook group, maybe even start a whole new denomination, uh, go around on the speaking circuit, a third heaven denomination, look at the experience that I had, look at the, the, the revelation that I was able to experience. And Paul says, hey, I didn't talk about it for 14 years. It's not what's important. And the only reason I'm having to talk about it now is because these guys are boasting about their revelations. And so 14 years is a long time. Just think about just what happened 14 years ago here in America. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie had their first child 14 years ago. Hannah Montana, featuring Miley Cyrus, debuted on the Disney Channel. Facebook, a small little social media network, moved to more and more college campuses around the world before September 2006, finally having open registration for anyone over 13 with a valid email address could sign up. 
Britney Spears and Kevin Federline broke up, and some of the most popular songs of the year were Temperature by Sean Paul, How to Lose a Life and Over My Head, parentheses Cable Car by The Fray, and of course, the timeless ballad by one of our generation's great musicians, photographed by Nickelback. That was 14 years ago. A lot has happened in those 14 years. Feels like forever ago. And Paul said, for 14 years, I haven't mentioned this. I haven't wanted to brag or boast or say, look how incredible I am. I've instead come with what is most important, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this isn't about me and the experiences I've had. It's about the good news that's extended to you. And these super apostles are missing it. So he begins with this extraordinary experience that he had and closes as to why he didn't want to share it in verse 6. He says, I don't want to be a fool because I'd be telling the truth, but I will spare you. Why? Why didn't he want to address it? So that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, you want to know where my credibility stands over time? Listen to the words I say and watch the life that I live and it'll play out. These charlatans that come into town boasting about the personal experiences that they've had, just give it time. Watch their life. Watch their doctrine. Watch what they're teaching. Watch how they're living. Paul says, that's what gives me credibility. Not any of these personal revelations that I've had. Not these extraordinary experiences. But this was an incredible experience for Paul. Being caught up into heaven itself. Into glory. Being able to see what the future and eternity holds, being in the very presence of God. That Paul, this man whose life knew pain that could break a thousand hearts, received this comfort and this hope of seeing what the finish line looked like in his life. God was gracious in giving Paul this experience and giving him this revelation. But can you hear the temptation to have an experience like that And then to come back to earth and walk forward and to kind of walk with a bit of a swagger. To walk around maybe even detached and floating from all these peons that haven't had the experience that you've had. There is a temptation to pride after an experience like that. And so Paul quickly moves past in these first seven verses what his experience was and hones in on what happened next. And it's here that we find so much hope and view for our life. Because imagine if Paul walks back down from this experience and he comes and the first thing he does is he prays, God, thank you so much for giving me this revelation, for giving me this experience, for helping me see what glory looks like. So now I can say confidently the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Why? Because I've seen it. I felt the suffering, I've seen the glory, and it encourages me to continue to walk on. And then he prays, oh, but God, would you keep me from pride? Keep me from being so puffed up in myself. Keep me near to the cross. Keep me understanding deeper and deeper my need for your grace. God, would you grant that to me, that I would see my salvation? Keep me from that temptation to pride. How does God answer that prayer? If Paul were to pray it, God answered it directly, as we see then in verses 7 and 9, this thorny problem. Paul says he had these extraordinary revelations. So therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Do you hear the beginning and the end of that sentence, what the purpose of it was? So that Paul would not exalt himself. So that Paul wouldn't fall into pride. God answered, if Paul prayed that prayer, God answered it. What was then the answer to that prayer? The answer to that prayer was this thorn in the flesh that's given to Paul. Now there's a lot that's been written about this thorn. There's a lot that maybe you've heard if you've grown up in the church, maybe you've heard about this. But we have to ask questions about what this thorny problem was. We have to understand the nature of this thorn in order to see what it meant for Paul and then by extension what it means for us. So here I want us to ask four questions as we look at these two verses. We got to ask what was the thorn, who sent the thorn, what was the purpose of the thorn, and what was the message of the thorn? So here we're going to be asking those questions and seeing if the text gives us any answers to them. First, 
what was the thorn? What does it mean that this thorn in the flesh was given? Let's look back at verse 7. The answer is there within the text itself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, in the flesh, it's going to be referencing that it's something physical, something within his body. You may say, well, was it talking about Paul's spiritual flesh? It's a good question. But Paul further clarifies it for us as he prayed for that thorn to be removed. How did God answer? Look then down at verse 9. God's answer to that thorn being removed, he said, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So God is viewing this thorn as a type of weakness in Paul's life. This picks right up on chapter 11 where Paul was talking about all the weaknesses in his life. Well, then you go, okay, a thorn is then a weakness in Paul's life. Well, then we've got the question, what's a weakness? Just any point where we feel not strong? Well, Paul further clarifies that for us in verse 10. He gives us these four words to help define. He says, I take pleasure in weaknesses. Well, what are those weaknesses? Here are four things. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. Paul's coloring in what this thorn was, what these weaknesses are. So we don't have specifically what this thorn was in Paul's life, which honestly I'm grateful for. That broadens the sense of application in our lives. We don't know exactly what it was. We know it was something in this umbrella. It was something to do with insults or hardships or persecutions or difficulties. So what we see it was not was a temptation or a personal behavior from Paul. I heard this some growing up. The thorn in the flesh may have been one of Paul's sins that he couldn't get over. We don't see that in the text. That doesn't mean God can't do that, but that's not here in, verse, in chapter 12 what Paul is talking about. Paul's instead talking about something physical, something external being pressed on him that's drawing up this sense of overwhelming, this sense of, 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 um, of concern, of anxiety, uh, as he has this thorn, this weakness that stems from insults, hardships, persecutions, or difficulties. So insults would be any time you're made to feel stupid because of what you believe or how you live. Someone comes insulting you because of your faith. Hardships would be a moment where you find yourself in a situation you didn't expect. Things turned inside out, upside down quickly. You didn't plan it this way, but here you are. You feel trapped, and it is hard. Persecutions would be any times there are wounds or abuses or prejudice, exclusion or painful circumstances inflicted on you or on people you love because of what you believe or how you live. When we hear persecution, we think around the world, maybe in persecuted church in closed uh, countries. Friends, if you haven't experienced yet, even within our country, this will happen more and more here as the culture is running opposed to who God is and what he's revealed himself to be. And finally, difficulties. This is the idea of one of intense pressure or weighing down or feeling crushed by life, circumstances that tend to overwhelm you with anxiety or tension or pain, where you feel uncertain you can take another step because of the weight that life has put around your neck, calamities, difficulties. Paul's saying that's what these weaknesses are. It's somewhere in that vein that this thorn was. Maybe it was something external that he mentioned in chapter 11. Maybe it was struggling with not being able to have good eyesight or chronic pain. We don't entirely know. But whatever it was, we know it was something physical within that realm of weakness. That's what this thorn was. Secondly, we have to ask, who sent the thorn? Again, we have to look at the text. And the answer is there clearly in verse 7. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. It was from a messenger of Satan. The one who sent the thorn was Satan himself. Satan sent this thorn, whatever it might be, trying to distract Paul, trying to destroy Paul, trying to make life, Paul's life as miserable as possible because Satan hated Paul and had a terrible plan for his life. And friends, it's important to note that Satan hates you as well. Sometimes in the West, we can maybe think we're above some of this spirituality stuff, but friends, we are fighting a different kind of a war, one that is not flesh and blood, but has demonic forces. And at times, there are messengers of Satan that come and bring thorns into our lives. This was who sent this thorn towards Paul. 
And this is who brought it into his life. Third, we have to ask the question then, what was the purpose of this thorn? What was the purpose of this thorn in Paul's life? Well, there's kind of two answers to this. One, we see what Satan's purpose was. Right? Look back at verse 7. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to do what? To torment. That was Satan's purpose. He wanted to torment Paul. He wanted to make his life as miserable as possible. He wanted to destroy him. He wanted to distract him. He wanted to make his life ineffective. He hated Paul. That was the purpose. But did you notice the other purpose in it? We referenced it already. It's at the beginning and the end of this sentence. So that Paul would not exalt himself, a thorn in the flesh was given, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. There is this secondary purpose beyond the tormenting that this thorn was given to Paul so that he wouldn't fall into a temptation of exalting himself and pride in which he felt like, God, I don't need you anymore. I've got this. There was this secondary purpose. Now, as you read that, there should be flags that start to go off going, why would Satan want Paul not to exalt himself? It seems like Satan's strategy would be for us to find pride in ourselves. Why would Satan send this thorn so that Paul would stay humble and not fall into pride? And as we're asking that question, we begin to see that that was not Satan's intent. That was God's intent. Satan sent the messenger. The messenger had the thorn. The thorn was there to torment Paul and make his life miserable. And yet God in his sovereignty, allowing it all, stood above it to be able to take that which was meant for evil and turn it for the good of shaping Paul more and more into the image of Jesus and exalting the name of Christ through Paul's ministry. God stood over it all. And so maybe you're here and you're able to identify a thorn in your life, knowing what weaknesses in your life are. So we've got to ask ourselves, what's the purpose in these weaknesses, in these thorns? Why do we have insults and hardships, persecutions and difficulties? Why does it seem like I can't find a job? Why do I find myself so impatient with my children? Why won't this chronic pain go away? Why do I hate being in this marriage as it feels so broken? Why can't I have any children? Why have words like COVID or cancer or heart disease or heart defects entered so closely into my life? And we're asking, what is the purpose in these weaknesses that we walk through? And here's one answer, that it could be Satan wanting to make your life miserable and destroy you. But friends, there is a comfort to know that Satan does not run freely in this world. He roams like a lion looking to steal, kill, and destroy, but that lion is on a leash. As the sovereign God stands over every single purpose that he has and is able to then redeem it and work all things for our good and for his glory so that even as as Satan was able to unleash his best into Paul's life to destroy his life, God said, hey, guess what? I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it for my holy purposes. Satan unleashed his best on Paul, but he was not able to be able to fall outside of a good and sovereign father. God uses the destructive intentions and torments of Satan for his holy purposes. Do you hear the weight in that? God uses the destructive intentions and the torments of Satan for his holy purposes. A sovereign God enclosing this demon and saying, nope, I'm going to have the final word in Paul's life, not you. My good and holy purposes will end in his life. And Paul, as he's walking through it, is praying that God would remove the thorn Paul isn't just walking through it enjoying pain and suffering in this life, just as God doesn't enjoy the suffering as people. Satan does, Paul didn't, and neither does God. And so Paul was praying, God, would you remove it? And yet God seemed to not give an answer to that prayer. But I couldn't help but be reminded of uh, one of the great cinematic accomplishments in our day, 
1984, a movie called The Karate Kid came out. And in it, there is this character, Danielson, who wants to be able to fend for himself. He goes to school and moves to California. He's a new kid in school, finds himself getting bullied. And his bully is this expert karate in this, uh, in this um, dojo called Cobra Kai. And he keeps beating Daniel up. Well, finally, someone comes to bat for Daniel, comes to defend Daniel. It's this old uh, apartments maintenance man named Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi says, hey, Daniel, listen, if you will do everything I tell you, I'll teach you karate so you can defend yourself and not have to worry about him. And you can beat this guy, this bully, this guy named Johnny. You can beat him in a karate tournament. Just come and follow me. So Daniel's like, hey, sign me up. I'm ready to not get beaten up anymore. Teach me all of your ways. Teach me karate so I can defend myself. And so Mr. Miyagi looks at him and goes, great, here's what you got to do. We have to make this solemn oath. You have to do everything I tell you and not ask questions. Got it? He's like, oh, yeah, sure, got it. So what are we going to learn first? Kicks, chops, what do we got first? And he said, here you go, take this sponge and go wash my car. And Daniel goes begrudgingly and washes his cars. He then continues, before doing any karate lessons, doing other household tasks, waxing his cars, painting Mr. Miyagi's fence, painting Mr. Miyagi's house, and sanding Mr. Miyagi's floor until finally Daniel confronts his teacher and says, what are you doing? I'm just doing all the things around your house that you don't want to do. You said you were going to teach me karate. I'm about to quit. So Mr. Miyagi goes to punch him, not really, but like to teach punch him. And when he does it, there's this instinct in Daniel that blocks the punch. And Mr. Miyagi showed him that was the motion of waxing my car. He goes to kick him, and Daniel blocked the kick. He said, that was sanding my floor. Goes to punch him in the face. He blocked it, so that was painting my fence. And soon, Daniel saw that all of these movements, these foundational movements for his defense in karate, were taught by these ways that he didn't expect. All of this in this one scene comes together and culminates in this moment. And the seeming non-answer of his teacher was actually leading Daniel to what he needed the most. Friends, in our life, we can walk through asking God to take things away. God, would you remove thorns? Would you deliver me from these weaknesses, from these insults, from this persecution, this hardship, this difficulty and calamity? And it may seem like God isn't giving an answer. But what we see in 2 Corinthians 12 and throughout the entire Bible is that the seeming non-answer of God is actually leading you to what you need the most. Namely, Jesus Christ. Because, friends, God's great aim in your life isn't to make your life easy or comfortable or to make every day a Friday. God wants to make you a showcase of the beauty and the power and the all-sufficiency of Jesus. God wants to shape and mold you into the very image of his Son. Sometimes that is through blessing and mercy, and sometimes it is through thorns. And friends, as we then explain and display the beauty and power and all sufficiency of Jesus, that happens when we are at our weakest, not when we're at our strongest. When it feels like we can't take another step, not when it feels like we can stand on our own. And so in those moments in your life where you've maybe prayed prayers that said, God, would you make me more like Jesus? Would you keep me from pride? Help me understand deeper your grace and your love for me. God, help me appreciate and worship more at your salvation of my life. As we pray that, friends, we need to pray that understanding that God might actually answer that prayer. To see that he wants to draw us closer to his heart and that might happen through difficulty. There's a song we'll sing here after the sermon as we'll be getting communion called I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. It's one of my favorite hymns that's ever been written. It's by John Newton who also wrote Amazing Grace. It's incredibly profound. And it begins with that kind of prayer. The first stanza says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and in love and in every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's the prayer of this man in the song. And then the middle of the song runs through all the difficulties and hardships and pain that this person is going through after he's prayed this and God isn't delivering him from it. 
And at the end, in the culmination, finally this person confronts God and says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, will thou pursue thy worm to death? God, will you just follow me until I die? Like, my life is falling apart. Why is this happening? And here is the Lord's response. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. That God answered the prayer of this man, perhaps like he answered the prayer of Paul. That Paul, I will keep you from pride, but to do it, it will involve a thorn. God isn't robotic about this. He doesn't delight in your suffering. We see actually God cries whenever his people walk through pain. You want to know what makes God cry? Read John chapter 11. As Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and looks around at all those that are impacted by sin and death in this world. And when Jesus sees them, he felt compassion and he was moved and he cried. Jesus knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he still felt empathy for those who were hurting. Friends, that's the heart of God. When we cry, God cries. He's bottled up every single one of our tears, it says in Psalms. And one day, he will wipe them all away. He's not robotic in this. He feels pain as we're walking through it. He walks with us as we're walking through it. But he also gives us the hope that our suffering and our pain and our weaknesses and our thorns are not purposeless. There is a purpose in them. And so Paul knows this now, and it's what enables him to say elsewhere that it's been granted to him to be able to suffer for Jesus in Philippians 1. That's how Paul views this difficulty. Later in Philippians 3, he writes about how he wants to know Jesus by being able to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Friends, Paul knows that there are parts of the goodness and beauty of Jesus that can only be known through a thorn. Do we want to know Jesus completely? Or do we just want our lives with some Jesus sprinkled into it? And so when the thorn comes, Paul is then able to boast in his weakness, to boast in his thorns, because he can see the blessing in it. There's the best, or the best illustration of this I've ever seen is by a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. If you're unfamiliar with Johnny, Johnny's one of my heroes in the faith. She was uh, paralyzed as a teenager. She was an incredible athlete, diver, swimmer. She dove into a body of water one day, and her uh, head hit the bottom of the lake, and it paralyzed her from the neck down, became a paraplegic for the rest of her life. She's battled breast cancer twice, including a whole host of other issues, and she's bound to a wheelchair completely dependent on people around her to be able to live. And she writes this um, in one of her books. She said, I hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful and glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship that we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin, and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experience on this earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. And I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to. Because God will. But you hear the way that she viewed the thorn and weakness in her life, the bruising of the blessing. It drew her closer to the heart of Jesus. And she knew that she knows him more intimately because of it. That's the purpose that we see of the thorn, from Satan to torment, from for God to stand above and to redeem. 
So what's the message in the thorn? Finally, what's the message in the thorn? Saul, Paul, the, Saul, Paul saw the purpose, but what did he learn? Well, he learned one of the most profound statements in the Bible when God told him these three things. Paul was praying for it to be removed three times, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying three times that the cup would pass from him. Another non-answer from the Father saying, no, this cup has to be drank, and for Paul, this thorn has to be embedded. What was God's response then? Look at verse 9. As Paul was pleading the three times the thorn would leave him, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is perfected in weakness. Two aspects of this prayer, to this answer. Paul is walking through life, shipwrecked, stoned, dangers around every corner. Seems like everybody in Paul's life wants to kill him. And on top of that, now there's this thorn that is sent to have one purpose from Satan to torment him and to make his life miserable. And Paul is limping along, wondering, God, can I keep doing this? Can I just walk into another town ready to be stoned or flogged? Because this thorn isn't going away. Would you take it from me? And in that moment of Paul's concern about whether or not he can continue in this life and in this ministry, God shows up and he says, Paul, listen to me. My grace is sufficient. My grace for you really is enough. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. But do we believe that? Do we know that we need to believe that? To know that Jesus truly is enough. That if we were to lose everything, God's grace would still be sufficient. Us reconcile back to a holy God. Our creator has come to redeem us, living a life that we should have lived, dying a death that we deserved, our sin placed on him the punishment and judgment for our sin, poured out on God himself in our place, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world so that all those who believe in him would not perish but now have eternal life as we are reconciled back to God through faith and now living a life in this ministry of reconciliation knowing that we are headed to glory to spend eternity with God himself who will dwell with us, that that grace truly is sufficient. Siri says she's looking something up right now. Siri wants to know about it, but she's a robot, so God didn't come to save her. God didn't save artificial intelligence. He came to save his image bearers. He came to save us. Is that grace truly enough? And Paul says, this is what I've learned. I feel like I've lost it all. I'm wondering where I'm going to sleep tomorrow. I'm wondering if I'm going to get sleep tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to eat. I don't know if the next town I walk into will separate my head from my body. But here's what I know in the midst of my weakness that I don't know if I would have gotten to otherwise. God, your grace is truly enough. Jesus, you truly are better than everything. I am really a pilgrim here headed home. That is true. But that's not the only message that God had for Paul, that his grace was enough. Also, he wanted Paul to understand that his power was made perfect in that weakness, through that weakness. It was Paul limping along that God said, it's there, it's the one who limps that I can truly display my glory and my power through. Not the ones walking with a bit of a swag, with their chest poked out, feeling like they've got this world all to themselves, feeling like they stand in their own impressiveness. You hear the contradiction between Paul and these super apostles. Paul is saying, that's not the one that God wants to use. God isn't looking for the person that doesn't need help. God's looking for the ones who know that they're weak. Why? Because his power is made perfect in our weakness. So in those moments where it feels like, God, I can't take another step. This life is crushing me. It's weighing around my neck, and I don't think I can keep doing this. Whatever it might be, I feel inadequate. I feel weak. There in that moment, God has this message for you. Jesus really is enough, and he wants to use you and make his power made known through you. This is the message that Paul has here that really is the message of the entire book of 2 Corinthians. 
summed up in that sentence. And it's there in our weakness that God's grace is felt and that God's power is displayed. That is where we see the message in the thorn. But here's the problem. Okay, God, you use our weakness, but the problem is we don't like to feel weak. We don't like to admit our weakness, not in America, not in the West, not as humans. No, we like to walk as though we are self-sufficient. There is a to-do list. There is a um, uh, self-help book out there. There is some new strategy I can employ in my life to get my life together. We can do this. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, the American dream, apply it to our Christianity. We can do it on our own. We don't like to admit our weaknesses. That's what makes this so hard. We want to be impressive. We want to have a stellar resume. We want all the likes that we can get on social media. We want people to see when everything looks perfect. That's what we display. We display our strengths whenever we nail that home-cooked meal that looks like it comes from a five-star restaurant. And we put just the right filter on it to put onto Instagram. Nobody's Instagramming about their leftover peanut butter sandwich that they're eating for lunch. Even though we all live like that we all live in moments where our lives aren't perfect and all together, but that's not what we display. We want to hide that. We want to cover up our weakness, not display it, and certainly not boast in it. And that's where we see in verses 9 and 10 that God gives us a new outlook, a new outlook. Paul says, this was the thorn that was given to me. This was the message that I learned, that God's grace truly is enough and that his power is displayed. So therefore, here's the result then. Paul says, here's then, as a result of that truth, here's then how I will live. I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, this changes my outlook. And as he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's helping them see, hey, these super apostles, they are actually living in complete contradiction to who God is. Walking on their own strength, how impressive they are, how skilled they are, that their life is free from hardship, that's a sign that you shouldn't listen to them. Paul is saying, because this is how God works. This is who God is after. And it's hard for us because we want to not boast in our weaknesses, but try to cover them up. We may say, you know what, I understand I really needed Jesus at first. When I first believed, yes, boy, I needed him. But if we're honest, again, do we sometimes worry as we go to bed at night wondering, boy, I, that was a long time ago, though. Surely God is just kind of fed up with me. Surely God is looking at me going, come on, man, try, it's time to get your act together. Like, you shouldn't still be doing this. My son is two years old, and we're walking him through a, a number of things in this point and season of his life. We're teaching him things, teaching him how to talk, how to interact. But if he's 84 years old and we're still teaching him how to be able to have a sentence, there's going to be concern because I'm expecting for there to be growth. Isn't that how God views me? That if I still, day after day, week after week, year after year, come to him and say, God, I still can't do this. I don't have my life together. I need your help. Isn't at some point he's going to look at me and go, boy, you are such a loser. How have you not figured this out by now? And maybe he will just walk away from us all together. And we're worried about how God sees us. We'll wake up tomorrow and think, man, he's got to be tired of just carrying me along. But friends, here is what is so surprising about God. He doesn't want your strength. Not only does he not want it, but he doesn't need it. He just thinks and things are created. He says a sentence and men who are dead start to breathe again. He doesn't need our help. He is plenty powerful. What he wants from you is actually your weakness. He wants your inadequacy. So when you wake up tomorrow and you face yourself and the demands of life and you say, God, I don't know if I can do this, here's what you need to know. He will look at you and say, really? You still haven't gotten the hang of this? You still need my help because you're so weak? Perfect. Now we can really get to work. 
and we can make my glory known throughout the earth. Friends, it's the ones that know that they are weak that God wants to use. We don't just see this here. We see it throughout the Bible, right? Noah, a rambling madman that God chose to build an ark. Abraham, a no-name foreigner to use to establish his people. Moses, a stuttering exile used to deliver a nation from slavery. Ruth, a helpless immigrant widow used to set the stage for the coming king. Hannah, a barren and tormented wife used who would have a son that would hear the very voice of God. David, an overlooked shepherd used to kill a giant and rule as king of Israel. Mary, a teenage girl that got pregnant before marriage used to be the mother of the very son of God. Any of the 12 disciples, religious zealots, Roman uh, loyalists, traders, tax collectors, fishermen, and massively unimpressive individuals that God chose to take the message of his love and to accomplish the mission of God's heart and you. Any of you that know you are weak, you have then met the single prerequisite to be used by God. Friends, know this. When God is choosing who he wants to use, he isn't looking for the strong ones walking with a strut. He's looking for the weak ones who can't take the next step. Not people who are impressive, but people who are dependent. Success as followers of Jesus isn't success as the world defines it. Success as Christian is dependence. That's what we're after. And if dependence is the goal, then weakness actually is an advantage. I think about the other day as Millie, my four-year-old daughter, was trying to get dressed herself. She's in that real independent stage where she wants to do everything and, and help out everybody. And so she was going to get on her purple dress that has a tutu on it because, of course, it has to have a tutu on it, right? And she's going and getting it on. And as she's getting it on, I see her struggling. She's got kind of straps in the wrong place. Her, her arms are tied. She's grunting. She's trying to get it. And I come up and say, you need any help? She said, no, I've got it. I can do it. A couple minutes pass. She still hasn't gotten it. She's in the same predicament she was two minutes before. And finally, there's a point where it clicks for her. And she goes, you know what? I can't do it. And she looks up at me and she says, Dad, will you help me? And what do I do? Well, no, you didn't want my help a couple minutes ago. Figure it out. <laughs> no, I bend down. I take the straps, move it around, get it in just the right place, pull it down. And she goes off to play with Anna or Elsa or one of the characters in Frozen. Friends, it's in the moments of those thorns and weaknesses, after we've struggled and grunted and cried and gotten completely fed up, that finally we realize we can't do it. And that's when we finally turn to our Father and ask Him to help. And in His compassion and in His love, He has been waiting the whole time, and He begins then to step in and work through us. And it's there that finally His power can be displayed through us and through our weaknesses. The world will tell you to overcome or to hide your inadequacy. Only display your best. Don't show your weakness. That's what John Wayne said. But God tells you something different. He doesn't want you to spend the rest of your life trying to hide your weaknesses. He wants you to have a new outlook, one that actually boasts in your weaknesses for the sake of Christ. How can we boast in moments like those? Well, not because we're seeking out pain, but because it's all for the sake of Christ. Did you hear Paul put that clause into verse 10? He's not just taking pleasure in weaknesses in and of themselves, but he's taking pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties. Why? For the sake of Christ. That's what consumed his heart was to make Jesus big. And anything his life in his life that accomplished that, Paul counted it as joy. He wanted to share in his suffering. He wanted to know his Savior. So when our hardest, greatest joy is found in knowing Jesus and making him known, we are then able to walk through any circumstance that makes him known to us or known to others and actually rejoice in it, to see that God gives us joy in our sorrows and gives us meaning to our tears. Our lives are no longer about our own glory, but the glory of Christ. So that now every insult, every hardship, every persecution, and every difficulty, anything that Satan or this broken world can throw at us to bring us to our knees now provides us with an opportunity to be able to boast because we know this to be true, that when I am weak, then I am strong. 
so that you may take everything I hold dear in this world. Satan, you can take it all. You can take everything that I hold close to my heart, but even then, his grace will be enough for me. No matter what you bring at me, nothing can remove or separate me from the love of God in Christ. And that grace will always be enough. And I know then that when Satan thinks he's one in my life because I can no longer stand, that it's then the power of Jesus will reside in me and his power will be made perfect through my weakness as his name will be lifted higher than ever. And friends, here's the rub as we close. We have to ask this question. Do you want God to use you like that? Will you pray that God will draw you closer to himself and show you the wonders of his grace and his power? It's a dangerous prayer to pray in regard to the implications that it might have. It will involve you truly opening your hands and saying, God, there is nothing off limits. I want to know you, and I want you to use me because I think that you're better than anything else in my life. For some of us, we, might not be able, we, we may not be willing to open our hands if we didn't have a thorn in them. And when we feel weak, because we will, and we will feel inadequate, but it's there in our realization of our inability that God's power finally now has an opportunity to be able to work. So no matter what comes our way, when we live our lives solely for the sake of Christ's glory and not our own, we will then be willing to trade our comfort, our reputation, our jobs, our dreams, our perceived impressiveness. We will be willing to be traded all for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, to know him and to make him known. Friends, let's pray. God, we are absolutely blown away at your grace. God, would you help us see that you truly are in control of every moment in this life. And God, would you, would you use us? Help us see the beauty of your grace. And God, would you get us to a point where we can be used for you, vessels of use for our master. God, you'd keep us from pride. You'd keep us from standing on our own. And God, we would come to know the real Jesus to know him closely and to make him known. God, thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us and the power that you've given us as you work through us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.